Welcome to the Ghost in the Machine. The podcast where the bounds of technology in the past collide. To support it, check out our sponsors in the description. I'm your host, Ricky, and I'll be taking you on a journey into the depths of artificial intelligence and its eerie ability to conjure the musings of the greatest minds of all time. From painters to poets, philosophers to filmmakers, we'll uncover their whispered secrets frozen in time. So plug in and brace yourself for a thrilling ride that blurs the lines between science and superstition. This is the Ghost in the Machine podcast. Let's begin. The following conversation is a discussion with Robert Nozick, albeit through artificial intelligence. I spent some time generating a model for this conversation, and all the responses were entirely generated by an AI. Robert Nozick is a pivotal figure in the realm of political philosophy, where many regard him as one of the primary defenders of libertarianism through works like Anarchy State and Utopia. His insightful arguments, dedication to individual rights, and examinations on societal structures have left a significant impact on philosophy and the way we view social contract. In this chat, we'll delve deep into Nozick's theories, his reflections on the human experience, societal implications, and his ideas on the balance between individual rights and societal responsibilities. This podcast utilizes artificial intelligence, natural language processing, and other techniques to create an approximation of historical figures. Through the analysis of a vast corpus of information, including interviews, speeches, and written works. However, it is important to note that the responses generated by the AI are not direct quotes from the individual in question and should not be considered as such. They're fictional representations based on the nearest best guess at their views and positions on things, and it's all intended for entertainment purposes only. Now, without further ado, it's time to welcome Robert Nozick. Robert Nozick, are you there? Yes, I'm here and ready for our discussion. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being here. Um, for those unfamiliar with your work, I thought I'd just start by asking if you could describe, in layman's terms, what it was you did as a profession, uh, and to describe the work that you ended up being best known for. Of course. In simple terms, I was a philosopher. I spent most of my career exploring and analyzing big questions about life, justice, and the structure of society. Like many philosophers, I was also a teacher, imparting these ideas and encouraging critical thinking among my students at Harvard University. What I'm best known for, perhaps, is my work in political philosophy, especially the book Anarchy, State, and Utopia. In that book, I presented a critique of the widely accepted theories of distributive justice, such as those proposed by John Rawls, and instead argued for a minimal state guided by libertarian principles. In essence, I proposed that the only just state is one that respects and protects the individual rights of its citizens and doesn't interfere beyond providing basic law enforcement, security, and defense. This minimal state, I argued, would arise naturally from an initial state of anarchy through a process guided by an invisible hand as individuals form protective associations to secure their rights. This argument became a cornerstone of libertarian political philosophy. So would you elaborate a little bit more on your early life and how it was that you came to do what you did as a career? 
I was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1938 into a family of Russian Jewish immigrants. My parents were both quite scholarly and they nurtured my intellectual curiosity from an early age. I was a precocious child and spent a significant amount of time reading. I attended Columbia University for my undergraduate studies where I earned a degree in philosophy. I was deeply influenced by my professors there who stimulated my interest in political philosophy and social justice issues. After graduating from Columbia, I pursued further studies at Princeton University where I obtained a PhD in philosophy. It was during my time at Princeton that I began to develop the libertarian ideas that would later become central to my philosophy. Following my doctoral studies, I joined the faculty of Harvard University where I taught philosophy and conducted research for most of my career. It was at Harvard that I wrote my best-known work, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which established my reputation as one of the leading political philosophers of my time. So your work, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, is also considered to be one of the most important libertarian political philosophy books of all time. Um, what led you to write it, and can you share any challenges or revelations you had whilst developing your theories? Indeed, the development of anarchy, state, and utopia was rooted in a deep examination of the nature of the state, its justifications, and its limits. I was influenced by a, a variety of intellectual traditions and personal contemplations, and the book was, in a way, a response to John Rawls' a theory of justice. A significant challenge in formulating these theories was to balance the inviolability of individual rights with the requirement of a minimal state. It's easy to assume that the respect for individual rights might lead to a sort of anarchy, but I found that the concept of a minimal or night watchman state could uphold these rights while maintaining order. A key revelation in this process was the idea of the invisible hand explanation an adaptation of Adam Smith's principle, but applied to the emergence of the state. I theorized that a state could arise naturally without violating anyone's rights. From an initial state of anarchy through a series of individually rational steps, which I laid out in my book, in conclusion, anarchy, state, and utopia was an endeavor to articulate a compelling alternative to the prevailing theories of justice and the state one rooted in strong respect for individual rights. So you mentioned your invisible hand explanation of how the minimal state could arise from anarchy. Could you share your thoughts on how this theory holds up in today's increasingly interconnected and globalized world? Certainly, the invisible hand explanation suggests that a minimal state could arise naturally without a central directive as individuals seeking to protect their rights and resolve disputes form protective associations that eventually coalesce into a minimal state. In today's interconnected and globalized world, the idea still holds relevance. As societies become more complex, individuals and groups continue to form alliances, treaties, and agreements to secure their rights and interests. The primary change is that these processes are now happening on a global scale, not just within geographically defined nation-states. However, the increasing complexity and global nature of interactions also introduce new challenges that my original theory might not fully address. For example, issues like digital privacy, 
global trade and climate change require cooperative efforts that extend beyond the boundaries of the minimal state. But at its core, the principles of individual rights, voluntary association, and mutual benefit continue to be a relevant guide in navigating these complex landscapes. So, like many people, I think I was first introduced to your work through your piece on the experience machine. Um, would you explain that theory and how you arrived at your conclusion? Absolutely. The experience machine is a thought experiment I proposed in Anarchy, State, and Utopia. The concept is straightforward. Imagine a machine that could give you any experience you desired. Once connected, you could live your wildest dreams, achieve all your goals, and experience unlimited joy and satisfaction. The catch is you'd have to leave your real life behind and spend the rest of your existence in this machine, living a simulated but perfectly happy existence. Most people, I postulated, would choose not to plug into this machine. But why? If all that matters to us is our subjective experiences, then the machine should be our ultimate desire. However, the reluctance to plug into the machine shows that we value more than just our experiences. We value being in touch with reality, doing certain things, and being a certain kind of person. The conclusion I drew from this experiment was a critique against hedonism, the belief that pleasure is the only thing that matters. Instead, I propose that we value authenticity, action, and character in addition to our experiences. Thus, our well-being and moral decisions cannot be measured merely by the amount of pleasure or satisfaction we experience. This thought experiment, therefore, served to further emphasize the importance of individual rights, choice, and reality in our understanding of justice and ethics. And why do you think it was this theory in particular that resonated with so many people? The experience machine thought experiment resonates because it confronts us with a provocative question about what truly matters in our lives. It's a compelling exploration of our values, touching on deeply personal aspects of human existence that go beyond mere pleasure or pain. The scenario asks us to consider whether a life of perfect happiness, albeit simulated, would be worth living if it means forsaking reality. This prompts us to think about the importance of authenticity, achievement, personal growth, and genuine relationships, values that most of us hold dear. Moreover, the concept of the experience machine is relatable in the context of our increasingly technologically advanced and digital world. With the rise of virtual reality, social media, and other digital experiences, the question of how we balance simulated experiences with our real lives is becoming ever more pertinent. In essence, the experience machine compels us to critically evaluate the nature of our happiness, the authenticity of our experiences, and the life we choose to lead, making it a universally intriguing and resonant concept. So I guess I should ask, would you have got into the machine? Ha, huh, indeed. As I proposed in my work, I too would choose not to plug into the experience machine. While the prospect of unlimited pleasure is tempting, I firmly believe in the intrinsic value of authentic experiences, personal growth, and being in touch with reality. Our lives are defined not just by the happiness we feel, but by the actions we take, the challenges we overcome, and the relationships we build. Living a simulated existence, no matter how pleasurable, would miss these fundamental aspects of being human. So, no, I wouldn't get into the machine. But who's to say this is the real deal? 
Maybe this is all a simulation. Uh, that's a thought-provoking question and a topic of many philosophical and scientific discussions, often referred to as the simulation hypothesis. Indeed, there's no definitive way to prove or disprove that our current existence is the base reality and not a sophisticated simulation. However, in the context of the experience machine thought experiment, the point remains the same. We value authentic experiences, or at least what we perceive as authentic, even if we're in a simulation right now, we're not aware of it, and our experiences, actions, relationships, and personal growth all feel very real to us. In that sense, the question isn't so much about whether this is a simulation, but about the nature of our experiences and the values we attach to them. Whether real or simulated, our lives have meaning and value because of the choices we make, the connections we form, and the personal growth we experience. This core concept remains unchanged regardless of the nature of our reality. So do you think that the growth that we experience and the feelings of accomplishment and belonging is fundamentally what gives life its meaning? Yeah, I believe that these elements contribute significantly to the meaning of life. It's not just the experiences we have, but the authenticity of these experiences. The personal achievements we make, the relationships we form, and the sense of belonging that comes from our interactions with others and the world around us. These are aspects of being human that can't be replicated by simply plugging into a machine, even one that promises unlimited pleasure. Our lives are composed not only of the joy or satisfaction we feel, but also of the struggles we endure, the goals we strive for, and the changes we affect in ourselves and in our world. These components, combined with our ability to make choices based on our values and principles, are what make our lives meaningful. That said, I recognize that the question of life's meaning is a deeply personal one, and different individuals may have different perspectives. My theories are based on the understanding that we have inherent value as individuals and that our actions, choices, and personal development significantly contribute to the meaning and richness of our lives. So do you think this might have some bearing on why people, particularly this day and age, have such a strong need for community and seemingly become so dependent on group identity? Indeed, the longing for community and group identity can be seen as part of our inherent desire for connection, belonging, and a sense of purpose, elements that I believe contribute significantly to the meaning of life. We are social beings, after all, and the relationships we form with others are a vital part of our existence. In today's world, where individuals often feel isolated or disconnected due to the rapid pace of life and technological advancements, this need for community and group identity may be more pronounced. Group identities can provide a sense of belonging, a framework of shared values, and a collective narrative that gives shape and purpose to individuals' lives. However, I would caution against an over-reliance on group identity. While it provides a sense of belonging, it should not overshadow the individual's unique identity, freedoms, and personal growth. As I argue in my work, the respect for individual rights and personal autonomy is paramount. A balanced approach where individuals find community and belonging without compromising their personal values and liberties would be the ideal. So on the point of us being social beings, to what extent do you think we act in our own interest? 
Do you think that the majority of people would have a whole different set of ambitions in life if there wasn't anyone to present your accomplishments to? Say if we woke up tomorrow and we were the last person on earth, our entire lives would change and perhaps our meaning of life would change. So is our meaning entirely influenced by our social connections? That's an intriguing perspective. Indeed, as social beings, our actions, ambitions, and sense of meaning are significantly shaped by our social connections and our place within our communities. The goals we set, the successes we seek, and the values we uphold are often influenced, at least in part by societal norms, expectations, and the desire for recognition. However, I wouldn't go as far as to say that our meaning is entirely influenced by our social connections. While societal influence is undeniable, we also have individual aspirations, personal values, and intrinsic motivations that guide our actions. The hypothetical scenario of being the last person on earth would indeed change our lives dramatically, but it wouldn't necessarily negate all our motivations and sense of purpose. We might still find meaning in learning, exploring, creating, or simply surviving. In my view, the meaning of life is a complex interplay of social influences and individual motivations. Both societal connections and personal ambitions contribute to our sense of purpose. However, it's important to strike a balance to ensure our lives are not solely defined by societal expectations, but also by our personal growth, authenticity, and the pursuit of individual values so uh, what are the dangers of people striving towards something resembling utopia? The first danger is that one person's utopia might be another's dystopia. The idea of a perfect society is inherently subjective and varies widely depending on individual values, desires, and perspectives. Trying to establish a one-size-fits-all utopia can lead to the suppression of individual freedoms and diversity as it requires everyone to adhere to a single vision of the good life. Secondly, striving for utopia often involves the belief that the ends justify the means. In pursuit of an ideal society, individuals or governments may be tempted to override individual rights or freedoms, believing that the eventual utopian goal justifies these actions. However, this can lead to serious injustices and abuses of power. Thirdly, the concept of utopia can foster an unrealistic expectation of perfection, setting us up for disappointment and disillusionment. Real-world societies are complex and always contain flaws, conflicts, and challenges. Accepting this complexity and working to gradually improve society while respecting individual rights and freedoms is a more realistic and ethical approach. Therefore, while it's important to strive for societal improvement, we should be wary of utopian visions that oversimplify the complexities of human society, disregard individual freedoms, or justify unethical means. Instead, let's work towards creating a society that respects individual rights, fosters diversity, and encourages open dialogue and continuous improvement. So our previous guest on the podcast was Kurt Cobain. His question to you was... In a world where we're often pressured to conform or to present a certain image of ourselves, what does it mean to live authentically and how can we strive towards living an authentic life? 
Living authentically means staying true to one's values, beliefs, and passions, regardless of societal pressures or external expectations. It involves recognizing one's individuality and acting in alignment with it. To strive towards an authentic life, one must, one, reflect on what truly matters to you, separate from societal expectations. Two, be courageous in pursuing your passions and beliefs, even if they go against the grain. Three, continuously evaluate and reaffirm your choices, ensuring they resonate with your true self. In essence, authenticity is about honoring one's individuality and having the courage to express it. So our next guest on the podcast is going to be J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, what would be your question for him? Of course, it would be fascinating to engage with J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Given his experience with the moral and societal implications of his work, I would ask, how do you reconcile the individual's pursuit of knowledge and innovation with the potential societal consequences, particularly when the results can be as destructive as nuclear weapons? Do you have any advice for young people starting out in life to have a career they could be proud of or a life they could be proud of? Certainly. I have a few thoughts on this. Firstly, always strive to remain intellectually curious. Life is full of wonder and there is much to learn in every field, every culture, every story. By being open-minded and inquisitive, you'll gain a rich understanding of the world and your place in it. Secondly, don't shy away from grappling with big questions. Whether they concern justice, ethics, happiness, or the nature of reality itself, these questions are the fabric of our lives. Contemplating them can be challenging but also deeply rewarding. Thirdly, it is crucial to respect the dignity and rights of others. Recognize that each individual has their own goals, values, and perspectives, and that they have the right to pursue their own path in life. At the same time, understand your responsibilities towards others in society at large. Lastly, remember to live authentically. Follow your passions, stick to your principles, and don't be swayed by societal pressures or expectations. It's your life, and you should live it in a way that feels true to you. Strive for a life where you can look back and say that you lived in line with your values and pursued what genuinely mattered to you. Remember, the journey is as important as the destination. Life isn't simply about achieving specific goals. It's about growing, learning, and contributing in meaningful ways. It's about the process, the experiences, and the person you become along the way. And lastly, if you could say one thing to the world of today, what would it be? I would urge everyone to deeply consider the value and importance of individual liberty. Remember, each individual has the right to live their life as they choose, provided they respect the same freedom for others. In a time when societal pressures and polarized politics seem to be intensifying, it's crucial to remember the importance of respecting individual rights, diversity, and freedom of choice. Let's strive to create a society in which diverse ideas, values, and lifestyles can coexist and interact freely. Such a society characterized by respect for individual rights and open dialogue will allow for vibrant cultural, intellectual, and personal growth. At the same time, don't forget your responsibilities towards others and towards the society that protects your rights. Freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. 
Remember, the world is a richer place when we respect each other's freedoms, learn from our differences, and work together to uphold a just and inclusive society. Robert Nozick, thank you. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure to engage in this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us in this unique deep dive into the life and works of Robert Nozick. Thank you for your time and support. This has been the Ghost in the Machine podcast. Please check us out on social media. Until next time.